This is the Imperfect Buddha podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently. Hosted by two terrible Brits, that's me, Matthew O'Connell, and my co-host, Stuart Baldwin. Each episode features a guest interview on topical matters concerning Western Buddhism and spirituality in general, or a lively discussion between the hosts, mixing insight with banter. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook, download all episodes for free at SoundCloud, and find out more, as well as lots of writings on topics explored in the episodes, by visiting our dedicated site, posttraditionalbuddhism.com. The Imperfect Buddha Podcast recommends O'Connell Coaching. Yes, that's still me, if you wish to work with any of the themes that have come up throughout these episodes. Find out more at O'ConnellCoaching.com. Welcome back to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. This is Matthew O'Connell, host of the show. What a summer it's been. It's been very, very hot over here in Italy and also back in the UK where I spent some time with my family. I've been busy, rather busy, but this hasn't led to a stop in work here at the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. We've just got done with another Insight Seminar podcast recording And for those who are new to these, they're uh, an extra. It's a sort of sideline project that we're engaged with in which we're supporting this pedagogical um, alternative educational project started up by one of the show's favorites in terms of guests, Glenn Wallace. Uh, Glenn's based in Philadelphia and he's put together these uh, series of seminars as an alternative adult education forum or space in order to encourage learning outside of the academy. This is quite an interesting move, especially if you think about what's going on on university campuses. Um, Different critiques have been thrown at them, uh, whether it's, you know, complaints about capitalism's role in turning universities into a product machine instead of an educational environment, Uh, the pricing of degrees, the often poor treatment of adjunct professors who are underpaid and overworked, or whether it's the other side of the aisle on the political spectrum complaining about the dominance of neo-Marxist professors. Thank you, Jordan Peterson, for that one. Now, to whatever degree that may or may not be true, we can see that there are interesting forces at play on American campuses. And education is, is, well, it's kind of suffering at present. Unfortunately, the model of marketization and monetization of everything has spread to my home country of the UK, and we're seeing similar problems emerge there. Various specializations closing down because they don't make enough money, uh, professors not getting the sort of contracts they might need to live a dignified existence, and ideology playing out, whether it's the pushing of neoliberal policies or it's the pushing of uncritical engagement with alternative ideas about race, gender, and so forth. It's all rather interesting, and uh, although Glenn undoubtedly won't be tackling all of that just yet, he is tackling some of it. And we at the Imperfect Buddha podcast decided to support him in this endeavor because we think it's really important to create alternative spaces for learning and for discussing ideas, rather like this podcast and the post-traditional Buddhism site. So today we've got John uh, Paish, or Paish. You'll get the correct pronunciation of that surname very soon when he comes on. I also wanted, though, just to sort of give a little bit of context to what's going on here, because I don't think 
these um, insight podcasts will be for everybody. We've deliberately made them short. The questions more or less are the same for each guest, so you know what you're getting. You get an introduction to the topic, the background information of the speaker. You get information on what the challenges are for those coming to these types of events. One of the reasons I constructed the questions in this way is that if you're not in Philadelphia or don't feel like nipping down in your car to take part in one of these workshops, by listening to the podcast you get a sense of the materials they'll be working with and you may want to go out and pick those up yourself and study them independently. Nothing wrong with that. One of the good things about this series of seminars too is that they represent a thrust that's been fundamental to the history of the Imperfect Buddha podcast, which is contrasting, or let's say fighting against, if we want to be a little bit more dramatic, the anti-intellectualism strain that's been so prominent in Western Buddhism and Western spirituality in general. Thanks again, America. Heh, sorry my American friends, but it is true. You guys keep exporting this stuff. That said, America, of course, like all countries, is a country of contradictions. And there are some highly intelligent, wonderful thinkers and writers putting out great material. And some of them are definitely showing up at these Insight seminars. So we've decided that we should promote this, whether the ideas are strictly Buddhist or spiritual or not. In most cases, you're going to hear me mentioning Buddhism at some point anyway, or at least tackling a theme in the presentation items that's related to a theme in Buddhism. One thing you might want to consider, though, is this basic principle. This basic principle that combines critical thinking with creative thinking, which is to treat any ideas or material as potentially ripe for exploration and as a means for thinking about yourself and the world and the practices you're engaged in and the ideas you're playing around with differently, critically, creatively. Yes, I said those words again. This applies as much to ordained Buddhists as secular Buddhists, as those folks who are kind of doing their own thing and not sure what to define themselves as. If we look at Western philosophy, it's not something that's antithetical to spirituality, or Buddhism, or practice, or experience. Ha! Absolutely not. It's fundamental to it. Today you'll hear a little bit about Deleuze and Guattari. These are two thinkers I've struggled to figure out. But hey, I know I'm not the only one. But you know what I do? I don't tend to read these guys' materials very much. If it's too much, I take other routes. It's like facing any kind of challenge. There's a huge tree you've got to climb. Oh my god, look at it. It's massive. Well, you could just go straight at it. But then you might find you struggle to get anywhere. But you can come at it from different angles. You can pick up different instruments. You can ask for help. You can look at it through a different lens or from a different perspective. At some point, though, what's important is engaging with that tree and at least doing something. And as you make it up through your struggles or through your ease, depending on how you function, you'll find that you get another new perspective that emerges as you slowly make your way up the trunk. It's kind of simple, really, isn't it? So there are books about these writers. You can ask a friend or you can simply get a core principle or idea that they play with and play with it yourself until it starts to make sense. One thing that John says, which I think is really helpful, is that with the workshop he'll be doing, and for many of us folks who don't have a professional background in philosophy or some other field of knowledge, you can start in the middle. And if you were to take the, well, the shamanic leaning that I'm familiar with, a very contemporary one, they might say, follow the attraction, where's the desire? 
What is it that pulls you, sparks you, wakes you up, makes you curious? Start there. Deleuze and Guattari have some very interesting ideas about lines of development. Lines of development and a philosophy of imminence. Wow, that sounds interesting, doesn't it? And if not, how about this? What happens to the way you look at yourself and the world if you really, really start to get away from this whole subject, object, selves and not-self business, these simple dialectics which rule and dominate Buddhist discourse? How do we exist if we're not a self? Or there is a self, but we're not really it. And what are we? Some of those questions lead in very interesting directions, some of them very practical and very simple, which I think are not particularly well answered within Buddhism, especially if you expand such ideas and concepts beyond the individual to a world which is living and breathing and alive and in which we are fully embedded and cannot escape. Well, we don't quite get into that, but it does give food for thought. Anyhow, folks, check out Insight Seminars, I-N-C-I-T-E, check out this very short interview with John and see what you think he's a rather fine chap very nice and uh, do know that the regular interviews on the Imperfect Buddha podcast are all lined up we've got lots of guests we're getting on you're going to hear more interesting conversations on this podcast at full length in the meantime enjoy this one Welcome back to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. This is the next interview in the series of Insight Seminars. And as always, names can be a problem on this podcast. And in fact, our guest's surname may be problematic. So I'm going to say, John, how do I pronounce your surname? Uh, Page. Page. You see, I wouldn't have guessed that at all. Right, right. You have to delete the middle and kind of compress it. Good. So let's, um, let's get cracking then. So how did you get involved with Insight Seminars? Well, I was I moved, I just recently moved back to Philadelphia from Athens, Georgia, where I was doing a PhD in philosophy, um, and so I was kind of poking around to see what kind of alternative, I suppose, educational opportunities there were, and the things that are kind of para-academic but not officially within an institution or a university. And someone I'm acquainted with, Anthony Paul Smith, uh, was teaching a seminar in Francois Laruelle sometime last spring, 2018. Uh, so I wrote the facilitator, Glenn Wallace, and got in touch with him and told him that I'd like to start teaching as soon as I arrived. So he was open to it. He's unfortunately open to experimentation as well. Mm-hmm. So he turned the keys of the kingdom over to me. Um, what's your professional background then? You said you were completing a PhD. Is that recent? Um, have you been teaching anyway or have you been involved in you know other jobs and roles? Uh, yeah, so I'm... Just finished a kind of five-year PhD program, which is more or less standard in the States. Um, and I taught for, I've been teaching for the last three years, Introduction to Philosophy, Modern Philosophy, those kinds of classes. Um, I'm teaching at Temple. I'm starting Temple University starting on Monday as well. Um, but I haven't only been a kind of lowly graduate student of some sort. I've worked as an editor. I did a kind of short master's degree at the University of Pennsylvania, centered around the poetry of Jack Spicer a kind of wayward American poet. Um, and I took some years in between my various degrees to do, I don't remember what, but 
This is a question I actually really, really like, and we'll see how, how, how much you're able to say in response to it. But what questions drive your personal and professional inquiry, especially because you've just said that, you know, you did this master's degree in poetry, which, of course, has some connection to philosophy historically. But for right. you, what stands out as some of the drives that, that push you to explore those different arenas? I suppose that I've always kind of been drifting towards trying to find a sufficiently robust philosophy of nature. I've only been able to articulate that recently, but I realized that that's been kind of guiding all of these different lines that I've been pursuing all these years. Uh, and so already, already calling it a kind of philosophy of nature is misleading uh, because what Joe Deleuze has helped me to kind of articulate is that what's desirable is not a thinking of nature, because that already kind of separates one from this tumult within which one exists, but rather a thinking with nature, a kind of unfolding of a certain kind of line of thinking in some way and being as true to the kind of impulse animating it as possible. Uh, so I'm in and out of kind of academic philosophy um, and I'm gathering lots of things from poetry as well, because poetry is precisely a curiously non-conceptual kind of thinking that kind of tries to unfold with an impulse and stay as true to it as possible, whether that's a kind of bodily impulse or if it's an impulse somehow embedded within language itself, whatever that might mean, or within the kind of material conditions within which one finds oneself. So poetry is a kind of perfect laboratory for this. Uh, and philosophy is a way of kind of connecting explorations of poetry and mathematical thinking and logical thinking and the history of philosophy as well so okay so is philosophy of nature officially a thing or is this sort of a acute name that's sort of given to a very specific line of curiosity um i i suppose it's a kind of disreputable discipline which of course makes it all the more attractive i mean it was kind of very prominent in the 19th century when you have I mean, Hegel writes a philosophy of nature, Schelling, et cetera, and there's romantic philosophy and romantic poetry all over the place. And these things are very kind of interlinked. But this falls out of favor very severely th throughout the 20th century. Um, it's not exactly given a cute name, but there's, um, a, I believe, a, a philosopher, Ian Hamilton Grant, who calls it, uh, I think the German is natur natur philosophy. Uh, so it's an even less cute name than philosophy of nature. It's a kind of single word that he derives from Schelling. So it's resonant. I mean, Deleuze in his kind of late years said that he and Guattari wanted to write a philosophy of nature. That was going to be their last book. But un unfortunately, uh, they both died before that was possible. So it's kind of picking up the threads that uh, Henri Bergson and Gilles Deleuze were working towards. So you've just mentioned uh, two big names, which some listeners will be familiar with, others not. You've mentioned Deleuze and Guattari. Mm -hmm. um, they were French, is that right? Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, you, know, you see their names popping up in a variety of different fields and disciplines. Why are they such attractive thinkers to such a variety of disciplines? And why do you think their thought continues to be considered relevant or important in this day and age? Right. Uh, I'm, I'm actually not sure why. Okay. <laughs> They're so open to uh, appropriation in the good sense of the term by so many different disciplines. I'm pleased by this, of course, uh, but it's, it strikes me as very kind of curious. I mean, Deleuze, for all of his avowed perversity, is nonetheless a fairly kind of traditional philosopher in the sense that he's steeped in the history of philosophy. And he kind of defines and determines his project based upon a relation, a, a very complex relation to 
philosophy. Uh, I suspect that they're so kind of appealing because uh, their kind of experiment, which was conducted mostly in the 1970s, and then again, they kind of uh, collaborated in the late 80s, I suppose, is because they wanted to develop a more kind of improvisational philosophy, uh, a philosophy which was just about generating kind of on the spot in some sense a kind of concept or a machine of some sort and then deploying it, see what it does, and then dropping it as soon as it becomes either disinteresting or fruitless. Uh, so that kind of spirit of let's construct something and see if it does anything and then assess whether – rather than asking, aha, is this truthful concept? Does it describe something external to it? Rather – what does this thing do? What does it bring into being? What does it make possible? How does it aid one in what one may or may not want to become? How does it contribute to metamorphoses and the like? So I think that more than it, more than the writings, which are quite frankly impenetrable and repelling in a certain sense, in a way that I like, I should also say, um, that kind of spirit, I think, is what a lot of people are picking up on. So I welcome it and I think it's wonderful. Okay, so in the title of the workshop you'll be doing, there's this uh – the two terms, larval subject. Ah, right. Yeah. Right. So um, why are you bringing this topic to insight? And what will it be that you're exploring specifically during the seminar? Okay, so I'm focusing on the kind of not maybe the central in terms of the most profound, but the center chapter of difference and repetition, which again is Deleuze's kind of central work. It's, as it were, the kind of navel for this concentric ring of Deleuze's philosophical endeavor. Um I am focusing on this chapter because it provides a good kind of introduction to the list. He himself said it was the most concrete of the chapters in Difference and Repetition. Um, and I think it gives the best kind of introduction to him in some sense. Um, but I should confess also that I'm most, I, I think it's a compelling chapter because it has to do with liberation. So Deleuze, in addition to being interested in thinking with nature, combines that with a pursuit of complete and total liberation. Of course, he doesn't say much of what about what that is or what that looks like or what that might constitute or how we could recognize it. But again, he's drawing here from Spinoza, especially that um, a philosophy of nature is going to have to be a totally liberatory enterprise. So this notion of a larval subject, something which is not this inviolable identity where you're this agent who makes decisions and rational choices and all of this kind of terrible mythology, but rather you're a larval being in the process of becoming something terrible and completely different from what you are presently. So it's that kind of aspect of his program that I really wanted to kind of, as it were, dredge in this insight seminar. Why, why use the word terrible? What's going on there? Oh, well, metamorphoses. These are awful, terrible, frightening things in some way. I mean, it's almost by definition, what one could never anticipate or foresee in any sense. It's at least a true metamorphosis in the way that Deleuze wants to use the term. It's something which is you undergo these awful movements, as it were, awful because they're very rapid and they completely kind of derange your senses and your thought patterns in some way. Uh, and then you come and then you become something which you have no control over necessarily. So it's a really kind of frightening, at least frightening in this kind of context, which, which tends to prioritize control, agency, rational decision. Uh, but it's a kind of frightening uh, you know, means of relinquishing control. Okay. It sounds quite schizophrenic at first hearing. Right. So, so 
part of the collaboration with Guattari is that he he's Dulles is interested in collaborating with him because he's a kind of he's he's, he's some kind of a, psych, a psychotherapist. He's kind of radical, uh, anti-institutional psychotherapist, and he himself um, deals often with kind of schizophrenic patients in a way that attempts not to pathologize them or indeed with kind of autistic patients as well. Uh, this was in the sixties, I suppose. Um, so they do kind of draw from these kind of clinical experiences, but they don't want to fetishize the kind of schizophrenic condition by any means, but it is, it serves as a kind of metaphor for becoming other and in, in, in entering into these kinds of like parallel worlds in some way that may be, kind of the only way out of a nightmare's present in some sense. Okay, sounds quite ambitious. So you mentioned the word freedom before, and this this idea is very interesting notion, uh, especially for Buddhists listening to this, of total freedom. Um, and you said, which is perhaps unsurprising if we look at the history of, of, of modern philosophy, that they don't necessarily give us a sort of recipe for what that would be. Right. right or a description but what about yourself i mean obviously if you've been reading this stuff and thinking about it deeply you must have some concept of what some degree of freedom might be from some present condition right have you come up with some conceptual form that you find useful or theoretically interesting um i like this notion that whatever freedom is or whatever it comes to be it's going to be kind of local in the sense that you can't have a kind of global description of what freedom is going to look like for all subjects at all times so it's this emphasis on kind of, you know, relinquishing control and sinking into the kind of deviant impulses which are already present in your body, in the language that you speak, and in the conceptual systems which you're using to kind of relate to the world and kind of orient yourself. So already within those, there's this deviant energy, this tendency to kind of swerve otherwise. Uh, so the idea is how, so, okay, so how can you kind of tap into that? It's not by designing kind of a program or kind of willing yourself to it, but it's about sinking into it, becoming complicit with it in some sense. So usually uh, complicity is a way to kind of say, aha, you're complicit with this evil institution or with this vast injustice. But Deleuze and Guattari kind of reoriented so that it's, okay, there is that kind of complicity, but there's also a complicity with deviant energies. And again, deviations are always going to be kind of local swerves in some sense. So whatever happens to be kind of impinging upon your very narrowly constructed conceptual apparatus, uh, you should try to go with that in some sense, rather than preserving at all costs, whatever kind of, you know, blinkered worldview you've developed in the course of your life. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's always so I've, I like this notion of ongoing experimentation. And some of these experiments will lead to dead ends. But that doesn't mean that they were fruitless. Um, they may not have been free deviations, but they may have been kind of determined in the bad sense of the word. But um, it, it's, it's to kind of keep pursuing them in some way, to never go, you know, with one's more uh, evident tendencies, I suppose. Mm -hmm. The relationship between deviance and compliance is an interesting one. Mm -hmm. um, it makes me think of some of the, let's uh, say, the received conceptual ideas that many uh, Buddhist and spiritual folks in general have about conformity to ideals of freedom and you know the performance of freedom as, as some sort of marker of of importance right, right. um and deviance i think it, it's interesting the way you're using it, it it seems to have this clinical background perhaps and this relates to guitari mm -hmm. um but it's a word we don't use very often right in in contemporary discourse it's something you might hear perhaps from a an old world preacher or 
some sort of eccentric character in a, in a horror movie. I don't know. But otherwise, it's a word we tend to avoid. It almost right. holds a sense that's risque. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you seem quite happy to be using it. Is that just because you're sort of um, aligned with this tradition of these thinkers? Or is it a word that you're appropriating in some way that you find stimulating or useful? I think both. And I should say that uh, Deleuze's use is not – he's not just uh, appropriating it from a clinical context, but it comes from the, the thought of Henri Bergson, who I think oh. perhaps more than anybody is Deleuze's kind of true um, uh, master in some sense, if you want to put it in those terms. That Bergson says, well, OK, what is life? What is this kind of life force? It's a kind of deviant dissipation of this accrued force. So when Bergson write, writes this book in the early 20th century called Creative Evolution, uh, he conceives of creativity and the creativity of nature, which, again, it's hard to kind of deny the fact that nature is creative. There's this insane proliferation of life forms, which is endless and which continually ramifies in every possible direction. Um, but this, so, so, so what is this creativity? It's not the creativity of a kind of conscious being or deity by any means. But it's merely the deviant dissipation of a crude force or energy. Uh, so Deleuze is getting it also from this kind of more natural context in some way. Yeah, does Lacan come up at all in the, the thinking of these uh, chaps? Uh, not uh, So Lacan tried to recruit Guattari for his own project mm. sometime in the mid to late 60s. And Deleuze himself knew Lacan. They were running somewhat in the same circles, but he... But Deleuze kept him at arm's length in some way. I think Lacan also tried to re recruit Deleuze. Um, so they drew from him, but they definitely uh, designed a lot of their project, whether it's anti whether in Anti-Oedipus or in A Thousand Plateaus, as being not necessarily anti-Lacanian, but non-Lacanian, I guess we could say, to, to use a kind of term from Francois Laroua, um, that it's supposed to be a kind of alternative to what they saw as a kind of needlessly schematic and, and overly rigorous uh, mode of thinking. Um, but I don't know too much about Lacan, I should say, also. Um, I'm, I'm taking it on their word. All right. Yeah, he's another cryptic personality that can be quite difficult to get into. Right. But yeah, some of his ideas pop up here and there, and they, they, some of them are quite fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned Francois Leroel, who you know I'm a pretty big fan of, or rather I'm a big fan of what he presents in terms of a way of thinking about anything that's, that's quite mm -hmm. liberational again, right? right? It gives the possibility for having a creative relationship with any system of thought. Mm -hmm. um, and we've mentioned him here quite a few times on the podcast. Um, to what degree is, does his thought come into the way you're thinking about the work of uh, Deleuze and Guattari? And will his thought have any influence on the way you present the topics that you're bringing to the Insight Seminar? I should say no. Um, and I, I, I myself came to Laurel after I'd already kind of steeped myself in Deleuze in some sense. So um, he's never been my kind of means into a think and means into Deleuze. Um, I like his notion of, again, experimentation and using thought as a material within which you work your kind of variants and you use it kind of improvisationally. So that seems to me profoundly kind of Deleuze Guattarian in some way. Um, Laruel, again, he's a kind of cagey and cryptic thinker, but he himself critiques Deleuze, of course, in the philosophies of difference. And Deleuze and Guattari respond to this and what is philosophy. So there's a bit of a debate, or I, I, I don't know if it's a debate or a dialogue or who knows, uh, but they resonate with one another in certain ways. But again, I'm not really sure that there's too much of 
uh, productive resonance, I guess we could say. Uh, so he's not going to be necessarily part of the seminar. Of course, if I'm swamped by Laurelians and that's what they want to do, fine. You know, I have no kind of agenda necessarily. Um, but I don't really plan on introducing him. Okay. Okay, good. So, you know, all of the thinkers you've mentioned so far, they, they all bring a certain level of challenge. And obviously, the Insight seminars are aimed at a general audience who we would assume are relatively well read. But apart from the complexity of the, the text these folks write, what, what other challenges do, does their thinking present? How will you be engaging with those? Right. So, all, I mean, this is always the problem with philosophy is that you have to kind of start in the middle in some way. This is a, a, a great emphasis uh, that Deleuze makes often. Um, but you're always starting in the middle with these thinkers, and they presuppose, at least in Deleuze's case, this kind of vast clamorous space of philosophical history. So they're always, so, I mean, it's very difficult to know what's going on without having kind of worked one way through the history of philosophy in some sense. Uh, however, I, I, I loathe this kind of, uh, disease that's infecting academic philosophy where it's like, Oh, you can't really engage with Deleuze until you read all of Leibniz or something like this. So you can't really engage with Deleuze until you read all of Spinoza. You have to master these kinds of earlier thinkers first. And you can't engage with Spinoza until you master kind of Thomist Aristotelian philosophy or something like this. So there's always this kind of uh, intimidation that academic philosophy uses. So I'm going to have to try to kind of give some sense of the context within which Deleuze both perceives himself and to which he's responding without, however, doing this kind of, you know, mightier than thou um, um, attitude, I suppose. But so that's a distinct challenge also. So how do so I'm going to be talking about Kant. I think that's kind of unavoidable, but how to do so with succinctly without having with without presupposing that anybody has read him in some way. So mm -hmm. have you ever listened to the partially examined uh, life podcast? Uh, once or twice, not often though. But yeah, yeah, it's a funny one. I, I think they're presented with this dilemma time and time again. Mm -hmm. uh, they give themselves a set of rules, and some of them are pretty good. Uh, two of them in particular make me think of uh, some of the challenges you might face in bringing these topics to a more general audience. The first one is to avoid using jargon, right, or specialist terminology. Exactly. And then the second one is to uh, assume no prior knowledge of the topic. Right. So you're uh, you're going to be starting in the middle uh, and jumping mm -hmm. in there. Uh, this is a more pragmatic question. What, what do you think people will get out of an exploration of the topics you'll be bringing to this seminar? I like this chapter, chapter three of Difference and Repetition, called The Image of Thought, because it kind of very helpfully, for me at least, lists what Deleuze calls eight postulates of, uh, now I'm already introducing jargon, but the dogmatic image of thought. So these are things which are, again, I think fairly, even if you haven't studied philosophy, they're fairly common assumptions to make. For example, that uh, thought is a kind of natural thing in the sense that it just naturally happens and thought is already acclimated to orienting oneself in the world and it's already kind of um, adequate to the task in some way. So Deleuze says, absolutely not. Thought is uh, erupts only from a kind of violent encounter as he puts it. So, of course, he's, he's, he, he's not talking about being attacked or assaulted. But, for example, when you encounter an artwork that you found profoundly disorienting, only then does thought, in the way that Deleuze is using it, uh, begin in some way. Uh, that it's those moments that we should focus on when we think about thought. And we shouldn't make all these assumptions. Uh, another one is that 
Uh, most people think that when they open a philosophical text or a text by an anthropologist or a sociologist or a political scientist or a poet, that the author has a kind of goodwill and that the thing to do is to read these thinkers with oneself a goodwill and try to figure out what it is that they mean and kind of, uh, you know, glom onto their uh, upright sensibility. But Deleuze says this is completely mistaken. Not only are thinkers perverse and they're doing kind of, you know, devious things all the time, but one shouldn't approach them with a good one. One should have an ill will towards them. That this would be the most productive uh, relation one could have to the philosophical tradition. So it, it provides a fairly kind of practical set of precepts for not just for reading, but for thinking and the ways of conceiving what's going on within the collective within within which one has to exist. So it's, you know, I hope somewhat concrete in a certain way, of course, uh, concrete in a way that's unexpected and kind of different. You've mentioned this core text, which um, will you be exploring other figures and texts in the workshop? Not so much. I sent out some of Dulles's shorter essays relating to Kant. Uh, there's uh, Genesis and Kant's aesthetics and um, for, on four poetic formulas that sum up the Kantian philosophy. And then a chapter or a series from Logic of Sense, Dulles's work from 1969. Uh, so I'm going to be talking about Kant and I'm also going to be talking about aesthetics as a kind of privileged domain for when these encounters occur. So if Deleuze indexes thought to these encounters that one has, it's more often than not aesthetic encounters that he has in mind and that he's thinking of. So I'm going to be privileging aesthetics in a certain way. So here's my kind of interest in poetry and music kind of emerging, uh, that these more than um, physics, more than mathematics, more than logic, more than what other philosophical, more than what other philosophers think, aesthetics provides a kind of privileged entry into thinking in some way. Uh, and that should be more the kind of raw material that generates philosophical concepts and things like that. Um, so again, but there's, of course, this problem as well that, well, isn't the best way to respond to a poem to kind of write a poem? Isn't the best way to respond to a musical performance to write some music, so to say? So why do we need to respond to an, an, um, an aesthetic encounter with a philosophical text? Why kind of deterrent things in that direction? So I'm going to be talking about that a bit as well, that what, what does philosophy have to contribute to this? Why can't we just stay within aesthetics? I mean, or if you're a physicist, you don't need philosophy, so why does anybody need philosophy? Can't you just do these things without having to engage with this very tedious philosophical enterprise? Yeah, although, you know, when you start talking about deviance and transformation, the, the tedium seems to disappear quite rapidly, right? Right. So, yeah, so that's the wager, I hope, at least. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's certainly some interesting nuggets in there. So when when's the workshop taking place? So it's Saturday, September 8th at 9 a.m. at Culture Works, which is in Center City, Philadelphia. Um, I hope it'll be the first of many. So if you don't happen to be around or like me, if you're listening to the, you know, you're hearing this and you're somewhere not in Philadelphia, this will happen in the future again, I hope. Great, great. And uh, do you have uh, other writing available, perhaps? Do you have a personal site that uh, listeners can check out? Uh, I don't have a personal site, but I do have some, there's some poetic, uh, I, I, I do write poetry as well, so my poetry texts are floating around for free online. Uh, there's also some short philosophical works. I do have an um, um, uh, article which just came out in Deleuze and Guattari Studies, uh, which is out of Edinburgh, Edinburgh University. 
Um, and so I'm, that's my only kind of philosophical writing, I, I suppose. But I'm happy, again, if anybody writes me, I'm happy to send them entire dissertations even. I don't have anything to hide. <laughs> okay, great. So folks can check that out. If you're listening and you want to know more about the seminar, just go to the Insight Seminar website and i'll spell that for you if you didn't catch the last one of these podcast interviews that's i-n-c-i-t-e and not the other insight and it sounds from what we've just heard that some inciting will take place at the workshop that you'll be carrying out john thanks for uh, speaking to us and all the best for the workshop ah thanks so much matthew yeah this has been wonderful mm-hmm.